When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Tuesday. Happy day after George Floyd Day. Happy day after Juneteenth. Did I say that right? Juneteenth. Uh, happy day after, it's, it's June 20th. June, happy June 20th, I guess. June 20th, who, the, who knows? Happy, happy Tuesday. We're well into the work week. Fantastic show planned for you today. It looks like me and Delano Squires are going to disagree about Juneteenth. Uh, we'll do that here shortly. Shamika Michelle is going to join us to help uh, help me make sense of what's going on with Russell Simmons and Kamora Lee. Uh, Jack Posobiec will be here to help me talk some politics. Hunter Biden's laptop and Hunter Biden's indictment or pleading to some misdemeanor charges, no jail time, uh, we'll talk about that with Jack and a few other things. Uh, fantastic show. Let's get right to it. Let me start a fire and then bring Delano in to uh, fan the flames or put the flame, douse the flames. We'll see what Delano does after this uh, fire starter. But I think we disagree about Juneteenth. Uh, outside the state of Texas, Juneteenth reeks of insincerity. The Joe Biden-approved national holiday does not celebrate the end of American slavery. It rewards racial grievance, promotes racial division, and diminishes Memorial Day, a tradition started by black Americans 22 days after Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered in 1865. Yes, Memorial Day was a byproduct of 10,000 freed slaves parading through the streets of Charleston, South Carolina to honor the Union soldiers who sacrificed their lives in the Civil War. Black Americans kicked off the custom of celebrating American soldiers who paid the ultimate price in pursuit of expanding freedom. If we knew history and understood it, we would recognize the fraudulence of Juneteenth as a national federal holiday. Juneteenth commemorates that Texas did not enforce the Emancipation Proclamation until Union soldiers arrived in mid-June of 1865. It salutes the stubbornness of Texas slave owners and the tardiness of justice. It's understandable that Juneteenth is and has been a big deal in Texas for more than 100 years. In Texas, the day is a celebration of freedom. Everywhere else, it's a celebration of, of the political spoils of grievance politics. Juneteenth has only mattered outside the Lone Star State since national politicians needed a way to pacify black activists looking to capitalize off the death of career criminal turned racial justice pawn, George Floyd. If George Floyd were alive today, smoking fentanyl, passing counterfeit money, 
and menacing women. No one outside of Texas would have pretended yesterday was significant. Juneteenth is insincere. Defenders of the holiday pretzel logic, common sense, facts, and truth in a desperate attempt to legitimize Juneteenth as a national holiday. In three years, no one has offered a sound explanation justifying the necessity and importance of Juneteenth. The best holidays observe sacrifice, triumph, and accomplishment. George Washington Day, Martin Luther King Day, Christmas, Thanksgiving, the 4th of July. The Biden-controlled government lists Juneteenth as National Independence Day. The next entry is Independence Day, July 4th. The back-to-back entries explain why Juneteenth is so polarizing. Countries do not have two separate founding days. The United States of America was founded in 1776. White and black Americans fought the British and contributed to the formation of this country. If supporters of Juneteenth were remotely sincere, they would designate it a day to celebrate freedom, not independence. Call it National Freedom Day. But there is very little sincerity among political partisans. Inauthentic debate and conflict rule politics. Juneteenth is one part George Floyd ransom and one part, one part political cudgel. Yesterday, Twitter reacted in full outrage when Christian conservative influencer Charlie Kirk tweeted an objection to Juneteenth. He wrote this, if Juneteenth was really about emancipation, why not? September 22, 1862, when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Or January 1st, 1863, when the proclamation took effect. Or December 18, 1865, with the ratification of the 13th Amendment. Because it's not about emancipation, which was one of America's great moral achievements. It's about creating a summertime race-based competitor two weeks before July the 4th, which should be the most unifying civic holiday on the calendar. Charlie Kirk's logic, whether you like it or not, is sound. Juneteenth is a well-executed political propaganda campaign. Leftists use it to trigger conservatives so they can then turn to black voters and say, look how racist white evangelical conservatives are. They're against Juneteenth. It's a gimmick that works every time because of black people's unabated affection for racial idolatry. Our racial idolatry has caused us to believe that any action that infuriates conservative white men serves the interest of black people. That is the depth of our worldview and political strategy. We don't do what's in our best interest because we've been led to believe that our enemy is the white man in general and the conservative white man in particular. Our real enemy is the man in the mirror. Our focus should be on thwarting and frustrating our individual flawed nature and instinct. Secular leftists control our emotions and actions because they know if they frame any issue as anti-white, we will interpret it as pro-black. Juneteenth isn't pro-black. It's pro-Democrat and pro-racial idolatry. The holiday is simply another secular tool used to convince black people that politics can deliver 
freedom, purpose, dignity, and salvation that only God provides. That is my fire starter on Juneteenth. Before uh, we bring in Delano to respond and to argue his, he wrote a column today as well, and we'll hear about that from Delano, I want to take care of uh, our good friends at Nugenics. Guys, are you ready to boost your testosterone and get your old self back? Our sponsor, Nugenics Total T, is offering a complimentary bottle when you text 231231 and enter the keyword fearless. Are you really ready to lose your shape, your muscle, your energy? As men age, we lose free testosterone. The man hormone, we lose that fire. It's harder to feel as alive and as energetic, be as active. It's even harder to stay in shape. Now you can get that old fire back with Nugenics. Want more energy, more power to fight the negative physical effects of aging? Nugenics Total T Testosterone Booster with Testafin will help you turn back the clock and re-energize your life. It'll help you look and feel like the man you want to be. And now get a complimentary bottle when you text 231231 and enter the keyword fearless. This is the unprecedented formula with science-backed key ingredients to safely maximize your free and total testosterone levels, help you increase muscle mass and skyrocket your performance as you age. Nugenics is also the number one doctor-recommended testosterone-boosting brand. If you're not totally satisfied, Nugenics will refund 100% of your purchase price plus shipping and processing. Now get a complimentary bottle of Nugenics Total Tea when you text 231231 and enter the keyword fearless. Text now and get a bottle of Nugenics Thermal X, our newest and most powerful fat incinerator ever with key ingredients to help you lose fast and get lean fast, absolutely free. Text 231231 and enter the keyword fearless. 231-231-FEARLESS. Texting enrolls you into reoccurring automated text messages. Consent not required to purchase. Messaging data rates may apply. The number one doctor recommended brand by primary care physicians based on an independent survey conducted by IQVIA 2022. I use the stuff myself, guys. I've been able, I've been working out harder and more uh, longer, harder, than I have in the past, ever since I started taking Nugenics Total Tea, I can vouch for this stuff myself. It is helping me, it will help you. 231231, keyword fearless. All right, uh, let's roll out to Washington, D.C. and bring on Delano Squires. Uh, Delano and I will be participating in a Twitter Spaces after this show today, uh, where we will be talking about Juneteenth as well. We'll give you a little preview of our discussion right now. Delano, uh, unpack your column today on Juneteenth and, and perhaps why you're a defender of the holiday. So Jason, I think the interesting thing is that um, the central point of my column is very much the same as yours. I, I read your piece and one of the quotes that I grabbed was, um, secular leftists control our emotions and actions because they know if they frame any issue as anti-white, we will interpret it as pro-black. And the, the, the central argument of my uh, particular column today is that there are conservatives who are just as Pavlovian in their response to the secular left as long as a particular issue is framed as woke or pro-CRT 
um, conservative commentators, including Charlie Kirk, including Candace Owens, will reflexively and instinctually uh, believe that they have to oppose it. So, for instance, I, you, you said Charlie Kirk was exercising sound logic. I disagree. Here's Charlie Kirk in 2020. Today is Juneteenth, celebrating the end of slavery in the United States. This was made possible thanks to Republican President Abraham Lincoln. Today, Democrats are fighting to tear down his statue. So three years ago, Charlie Kirk was celebrating Juneteenth, right? He acknowledged it during the Trump presidency. And now three years later, he's, he's bashing the, the holiday. And I think uh, this is almost entirely due to the fact that conservatives feel that this has been pushed by the left. President Trump um, acknowledged, commemorated Juneteenth in 2018, two years before the summer of Floyd. He did so again in 2020. He, he pledged to make it a federal holiday during the election of 2020. And now that obviously he did not win that election, um, there's a very different response to the holiday. So, so my thing is this, it's, it's fairly simple. The left, the secular left, progressive left, can't keep their hands off of our children or our history. And I don't think the conservative impulse to cut and run, the, the way we do with pride stuff, serves us well when it, when it comes to this issue. I think that we should put facts about history over feelings about our ideological foes. So I think what you pointed out was hypocrisy in, in Charlie Kirk, not a flaw in his logic. I, I think he had a different view earlier and <laughs> he's expressing a new view today. And that's mm -hmm. hypocrisy. I don't know if it's flawed logic. That, that, that would be my, and, and then I think opposing things because they're woke or CRT or framed in that way, I, 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 I think that's different than opposing things because some group tells you, hey, this is anti-white or things are positioned as anti-white. I don't, and, and for me, the, 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 the political partisanship of this argument is inconsequential to me. And, and it's more about, do we have, does Juneteenth serve America, serve black people in, in that order? And I say no. I don't think it serves America, and I don't think it serves black people. I think, and so th those are really the only questions I have. Whether they serve the left or right is somewhat inconsequential. I point it out because I I'm trying to point out there's a tactic here of a worldview built around being anti-white is not a worldview that will lead to success for non-white people. It it's, it's, it's silly, it's stupid, and, and it, and it it's, you're being convinced of something that I think is antithetical to a Christian worldview. My enemy is me, my flawed nature, my, my own wickedness is destroying me. Not mm. some random white man, not a collection of white men, and not conservative white men or liberal white men, it's my own wickedness and so we as black people have been convinced that uh, our enemy is the white man. And as long as we 
are battling him instead of ourselves individually, we're not going to make sustained progress. We're going to be left with trinkets like Juneteenth. Hey, you get a day off work and you get to have a barbecue and pretend like somehow you're served and this is going to move you ahead. Uh, I, I, I just, I find Juneteenth divisive, pointless, redundant. I get, I, the, I get Charlie Kirk's deal like, hey man, they're trying to undermine uh, the 4th of July and when I go look at the, how the government described National Independence Day and then July the 4th is national, I get his argument. My thing is like, as black people, we started Memorial Day after the Civil War, 22 days after the Civil War, to celebrate soldiers who sacrificed their lives for our freedom. Mm -hmm. That's our real Juneteenth. This is something that Texas, it's a nice little distinction and a reason for Texas to throw a party. It's like Delano and his family throwing a party for my birthday. That's a nice little event for me and my family. Uh, and you're more, you're more than welcome to attend my birthday party, but I don't get the point of Delano celebrating my birthday and people in Indiana or I'm trying people in South Carolina or mm -hmm. other places where you know they experienced the emancipation 22 days earlier or 30 days earlier or whenever Union soldiers were there. Again, this is a nice little thing for Texas. It's just polarizing, divisive for America, and it doesn't move black people forward. Well, so Jason, a couple things. One, so I, I, fi I figure we'll do a fair amount of disagreeing in this segment. So let me start with a point of agreement, which is I, I agree, and, I, and I've said for at least, two, at least two years that the left looks to use and distort America's history, particularly the history on race, for its own partisan political purposes, right? That their argument, and this is, this is sort of the BLM-inspired activist argument, is that the nation is endemically and systemically racist, and as such, it needs a new founding, it needs a new flag, it needs a new anthem. Uh, and, I, and I do think Democrats are using some of these things. Uh, I, Juneteenth, lift every voice and sing. I thought the new flag would be the, the, the green, black, and red of, of Pan-Africanism. I was wrong on that. It's clearly the pride flag. So that was a little, you know, monkey wrench. But their use of these symbols, because every nation has symbols, um, does not change what these symbols actually mean. So, so to me, um, it, it's ironic that conservatives are talking about his, history, historical accuracy, while not even, you know, addressing what Juneteenth is and and is and is about. If if the largest if the largest takeaway from someone like Charlie Kirk or Candace Owens is that Juneteenth is divisive, then to me you're missing the entire point, right? No, virtually none of the holidays we celebrate are are celebrated according to what they mean. Maybe New Year's New Year's Day because we all you know experiencing the new the New Year at the same time. But for Memorial Day is basically the, the start of summer. Very few people, particularly if you don't have family that served in the military or didn't lose a loved one in, in uh, a war, are thinking about soldiers who died in war, right? Christmas has become, become completely commercialized. The, the fact that some soulless corporation uses Christmas to, to make me go into debt so I could buy trinkets and cheap plastic garbage from China to give to my kids does not change what Christmas means to me as a Christian. 
And what I'm saying is a country should fight for its historical symbols and its children, right? I'm, I'm not saying that the fight is going to look the same for, for both. But what I'm saying is when, when the left says, oh, we want to distort history, to me, the proper response from conservatives should be, oh, absolutely not. You're, you're not going, we're not going to let you do that. Here's what these particular days, this is what these symbols mean, but, that, but that's not the thing. They, they don't do that. And to me, um, Candace Owens getting on Twitter yesterday and saying, um, Juneteenth is, so, between yesterday and previous years, Juneteenth is so lame. Juneteenth is ghetto. You know, the, the black community is ghetto. That's way more divisive than somebody, you know, going to a little parade eating a hot dog and, and, and wearing a red, white, and blue headband. So I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to the notion that um, the, the day itself, right, is, is divisive. Now, if you want to make the argument, and this is a marginal argument, that moving it from a regional commemoration to a federal holiday in some ways changes it, that's true. A lot of people, myself, you, I grew up in New York, you grew, you grew up in, in Indy, we didn't, you know, grow up celebrating this. My wife is a Texan. She said, yeah, I, I marched in, in Juneteenth uh, parades. She has a different orientation to it. So, so we, can, we can agree there that making it, moving it from regional to federal does something. But what I'm saying is the move does not change the essence of the holiday. And in the same way, and I made this argument to the end of my piece, if President Biden in 2021, when he made Juneteenth a holiday, said, we're also gonna make the first day of Passover a holiday because there was a vicious uh, anti-Semitic attack at the Pittsburgh Tree of Life Synagogue, right? A few years earlier, which there was. And we, we want to do this to honor America's long history of contributions from the Jewish community, right? Him doing that does not change the meaning of Passover. So, and I highly doubt Charlie Kirk or Candace Owens or many of the other voices would say, well, before yesterday, nobody heard of the book of Exodus. Oh, uh, the Passover is just making it in federal holiday. It's just appeasing, a pandering to the Jewish community. I highly doubt they would say that. They, they, they say these things. And, go, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, th th again, I'm going to go back to something similar I said about hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Distorting the meaning is different than something that's divisive. And so... Do, do have the has the meaning of Christmas and virtually every other holiday been distorted? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do I think overall Christmas, Thanksgiving, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, are they divisive? I say no. And, okay. and, and this particular thing is divisive and it's divisive for very sound reasons. One because they're calling it National Independence Day. It's like, well, hold on, man, we done had a National Independence Day for more than 200 years. You wanna have another one two weeks before the one that we've all have been celebrating for more than 200 years? I, I get that, that's divisive. Then for my complaint, it's just like, hey man, black people started a tradition in 1865 Mm -hmm. that the whole country eventually jumped on board with. And it was about celebrating the end of the Civil War and the sacrifices that soldiers made, black and white. Mm -hmm. and, and, but oh, now we got to have Juneteenth because, and, and literally, let's don't kid ourselves, 
it's all because of Black Lives Matter and George Floyd that this holiday exists. Trump was pandering in 2020 during the election cycle when he was promising it, and Joe Biden followed through with the pandering when he made it into a, a federal law. This is all pandering mm -hmm. all over George Floyd, all over the Black Lives Matter. Oh, what can we do to pacify the Negroes? We don't have to get, we don't have to invest in young black boys. We don't have to bring manufacturing jobs back and empower their fathers. We don't have to lean into promoting the family structure and giving them real solutions. Let's just make this silly Texas holiday a national holiday and Negroes can have barbecues and, and sit around happy. Man, we frustrated white folks today. Look how pissed they are about Juneteenth. That's my pro. It's divisive and it's, it's counterproductive and it speaks to how little actual respect that white people in power, conservative, liberal, whatever, black people, how black people in power, how little mm -hmm. respect they actually have for us. Well, again, I, I completely disagree. I don't, I don't think the holiday itself is divisive, right? Again, to, to me, the more divisive things are, are to take what some people, let, let's, let's just assume that it's, it's a regional thing, right? Texas and then any cities where Texans have migrated. So, so they've been doing this for decades. To me, it's much more divisive for somebody to get on Twitter and say, oh, this is ghetto, this is trash, this is stupid. The, the people celebrating it are not calling it. I have never heard a Texan or anybody else who celebrated Juneteenth call it National Independence Day. So again, I, I think it's important, Jason, because you and I, and particularly you, you have a much longer career at, at doing this, right, where you, you will get over a target and say, okay, I got a nuke for you, right? You, you, you're doing nonsense, I'm gonna drop this nuclear bomb on you. But, but when you're dealing with heavy artillery, one of the things you have to be mindful of is collateral damage. So by, 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 get, by getting online and, and trashing the holiday and diminishing it and tying it to George Floyd, what you end up doing, and Candace Owens and Charlie Kirk, what I think you all end up doing is, is um, in many ways criticizing the people who, who celebrate it in, in genuine good faith. Because the criticism that I hear you making about that, about what it's called in the National Register and how it's been used, is criticism of politicians. Now, if that was all the criticism was, then that's where it would go. But, but when you start to say, oh, black folk who's celebrating it are being unserious, this is divisive. Now you're talking about crit criticizing the people who are celebrating. And again, people like to get off in the summertime. Very few people are reflective of what a particular holiday means across the board, black, white, Chinese, or candy stripe. So to me, Juneteenth is not special in that way. Do I, do I wish that Juneteenth was kept as a regional celebration and commemoration? Yes, I do. Yes, I do because then it can keep its original essence and meaning. But it is not lost on me, and I said this in my piece. Republicans, and, and I get this because this is, everything is about partisan politics. Republicans for years have tweaked the left by saying Democrats were the party of slavery. Democrats were the party of the KKK. Democrats were the party of the Confederacy. We're the party of Lincoln. We're the party of abolition. But as soon as the, the, the left does something that can be framed as woke or as promoting CRT, 
Now the same party of Lincoln will cannibalize its abolitionist history in order to criticize the left. And conservatives and elect, elected officials in Congress today, I'm thinking of Lauren Boebert uh, particularly, are more passionate about conserving Confederate statues in the US Capitol, right? She, she said she voted, no, we want these Confederate statues to stay because we don't wanna tear down history. But when Lift Every Voice and Sing comes on, and again, I get the, how is the gamesmanship. Then it's, oh, what's this stupid song? Where, where did this come from? Nobody heard of it. So, so my thing is this, if you really care about history, you will keep everything in its proper place. And as aside from politics, as a personal matter, my reaction to new information that I had not heard previously is typically, wow, I didn't know that. That's pretty interesting. Let me learn more. My reaction is almost never, oh, this is stupid. Who cares about this? Nobody ever heard of this before. No, I didn't hear about it. Just because I didn't hear about something doesn't mean that nobody heard about it. And I think that was one of the problems when Trump said nobody had heard of Juneteenth. And it's one of the problems when, when a, a, a conservative commentator like Candace Owens, who grew up in Connecticut, says, oh, what's, Juneteenth is stupid. Who, who ever heard of that before? I'm like, just because you didn't hear about it doesn't mean it doesn't, it doesn't matter to other people. And, and as a matter of practice, and particularly as a matter of Christian charity, you invoke Charlie Kirk's faith. My response to seeing other people celebrate, uh, assuming it's not a celebration that I, that I believe goes against God's word or nature, my response is not to make fun of them and to talk about how stupid they are. That's not my response. But if that's what conservatives want to do, then, then obviously that's, that's their decision. And so I, I can't speak to the conservative part, but I, I can just speak to Christian American part. And so mine isn't a uh, reaction along political lines because again, politi- th- 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 this same type of pandering, does it surprise me that Donald Trump was pandering in this way? No, He's, he got into politics and that's what politics does. It makes you, po- it makes you pander. And, and it, we'll see the exact same thing. This is all part of a slippery slope, how we got to Pride Month. And, and, and how one day we'll be celebrating their National Gay Independence Day uh, 50 years from now. There's, it's all a little slippery slope. I will, this is what I'll say about Candace Owens' tweets of criticism versus the United States government listing something as National Independence Day. Candace mm-hmm. Owens, I know she's got a nice little Twitter following of two or three million. But in the grand scheme of things, she's not that important. The U.S. government, when Joe Biden and the federal government, we saw Donald Trump all going down this path going, yeah, we're going to make Juneteenth uh, a national federal holiday. We're going to take a nice little event in Texas and turn it into a national holiday that in no way, Delano, in my view, and, and I'm more than open to hearing the argument. This can't be disconnected from George Floyd. It would not exist as a national holiday without George Floyd. That's, you take Trump jumping on board with it, it's in the aftermath of George Floyd and him needing to get the black vote and if he can swing one or 2% of the black vote, you know, it could perhaps put him in the office. Joe Biden and all the pandering that that, that they did. This, I've read last year when I wrote and talked about this, 
the Washington Post, and I'm looking at, I think the woman's name was Opal Lee. She's been, she's like the godfather mm. or the matriarch of the whole movement or whatever. Yeah. I'm listening to them talk about this and connect it directly to George Floyd as a national holiday and how this is about, it was about slavery violence and now it's about police brutality and blah, blah, blah. This, no one on the side that promoted this is trying to disconnect it from George Floyd. It just wouldn't exist as a national holiday without George Floyd. And, and I'll just reiterate again, I just don't think Candace Owens' tweets criticizing it amount to much. They're, they're just tweets from well, I, someone I, with a, you know, a couple of million Twitter followers. Well, as, as somebody who worked in government, not federal government, local government for a decade and a half, I know there's a lot of stuff that gets put on government websites that is never seen. Part of what the government does is they measure success by how many reports they can create and how many things they can put on their website. So if, if you ask me to wager the deed to my house on whether more Americans saw Candace Owens' tweets yesterday calling Juneteenth ghetto or have seen the, the uh, official website that lists Juneteenth as National Independence Day, that is an easy wager. Jason, I'm not, I've never been to Vegas. But even I know how to bet on that one, right? I'd say, of course, they've seen Candace Owens' tweet. Nobody's reading some government website because none of the none of the materials that promoted Juneteenth events that I saw, right? Maybe there's some little things somewhere in some city, but all of them were saying Juneteenth or Juneteenth Freedom Day. I didn't see anything that said National Independence Day. So again, I, I take your point, which is this is the official record of the federal government. But if you compare the number of people who have searched that website and the number of people who viewed Candace Owens' tweet yesterday, my guess is that the number of people who viewed the tweet is far, far greater. But, but, but again, I'm not arguing with you in terms of how, how these symbols are being used. My argument is that, again, the left has grubby, sticky fingers. Even, even in Pride Month, I saw a tweet from the Human Rights Campaign at HRC who made the connection, they talked about intersectionality and LGBTQ rights and Juneteenth. This is what they do. They can't help themselves. They have to reach out and touch something. So what I'm saying is, in the same way, when they reach out and those sticky fingers start heading towards my children, right, the, the proper response is to smack them away. And to me, that's the proper response when they reach out and they start uh, uh, reaching their grubby fingers toward our history. It's to say, no, you can't, you can't do this. We won't allow you to do this. But the conservative impulse, particularly on matters of race, is typically to cut and run, and it's typically to criticize, right? And by doing so, because conservatives like Candace Owens, and particularly her, and I've said this before publicly, um, she would, Candace Owens is the real life version of if, you know, uh, the Klan came to the door of Malcolm X's dad in the movie, and instead of him answering the door, it was a teenage girl, and she had she had the, the rifle, and it's kind of shaky in her hand, and it's bigger than, than she is, and she doesn't really know how to handle it. So she'll just fire off at anything, right? And conservatives do that. And they think that they're hitting the left, but what they're actually doing is, is hitting millions of people who just go on about their business and are being told that what they either have been doing for 50 years or started to do a couple years ago is, is ghetto. And to me, that doesn't make sense. And, and listen, at no point have I said during this conversation, oh, this is a bad strategy to get more black votes, because ultimately, I don't really care about that. 
I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't, my analysis is not political in that I'm trying to get a particular candidate into office. My, my analysis considers politics because as I said, um, our politics are completely Pavlovian. And in the same way you make the argument that black folk can be triggered by anything that's framed as, pro, as pro-white or white supremacy or white culture, I'm saying conservatives, largely white conservatives, can be triggered in the same way by anything that's framed as woke. And as I said, they will cannibalize their own abolitionist history in order to say, oh, we got those woke leftists. I I don't, I guess the the issue that I'm having is, I don't see this as woke. I I don't see Juneteenth as as woke. I I get the connection, but my Mm -hmm. reaction to it isn't, you know, woke to me is people, you know, running around pronouns and, uh, you know, all this posturing about how, uh, you know, they're, all, they're the one human being born on the planet free of prejudice and, and all this. I, I, I see this as just incredibly politically cynical and unproductive and divisive. And, and so I, I don't see it, I, I guess it is, as I'm sitting here thinking, I guess I could see the through line in terms of, because it is connected to Black Lives Matter and Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter is, is what, but, but again, I just see it more as a right and wrong issue. And uh, a day, a national day celebrating Hey, uh, some information or uh, some information and some troops showed up 30 days later to Texas mm-hmm. uh, to free to in, to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation. That's just not a national holiday. That that's that's a Texas party. It, it's not a national holiday. And and so when people get offended and say, hey, what are we doing here? I, I get that th- there's a nice little quirk. There was a 30-day delay before troops got to Texas. I, I, I get, but why is this a national holiday? Why, why, why are we taking off from work? Why, why are we pretending like uh, this, is, this is the equivalent on the same level as Memorial Day or the 4th of July or Martin Luther King Day or these significant days in uh, America's history. This is a significant day in Texas's history, and and I just see it as a right and wrong, and and particularly when I know like they did this because of George Floyd, they did this because of politics, and they did this as a way to pacify black activists, and and, and I'm just like this is wrong. So. So I mean, again, I'm not I'm not gonna fight you on the on the pacification piece because I, I agree, in terms of the little trinkets and scraps that that particularly Democrats give to the black community. I will say this: um, every national holiday, every federal holiday, is not national in terms of its coverage. And I, I'm thinking particularly like Columbus Day, which is less about Columbus at this point, and Columbus Day largely, and and maybe I'm biased because I grew up in New York City, in a city with such a large Italian population. But Columbus Day is, in effect, Italian Heritage Day. 
Um, and you're not talking about a population that's, that's particularly large in this country, but that's, that's how it is in, in many cities. It's a celebration of Italian heritage. But let me ask this question, Jason, to you. Would you have a different position on Juneteenth if it was not a federal holiday, but instead was a, a day, a sort of lowercase h holiday along the lines of St. Patrick's Day, Valentine's Day, Cinco de Mayo, or any sort of regional or issue-specific day which is acknowledged, which we all know, but don't get off from work. Would your position on the issue be any different if, if we went to work yesterday on Juneteenth, but there was an acknowledgement from the president, people talked about what they're doing for Juneteenth, you saw pictures of the cookouts and the barbecues, so on and so on and so forth. Would you have a different position on it then? Probably, it would certainly, it would, it would, I would have to say there'd have to be a 25 to 50% difference in my reaction, and it may be 100%, I don't know. You're asking me in real time and I'm trying to think it through. But yeah, I mean, I mean one of the things I just thought, I was like, man, you know, Easter ain't no national holiday. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and I like your references to St. Patrick's Day and all that, and if people, wanted to gather and, and, and celebrate, but again, this thing is specific to Texas. And this is where I totally agree with Charlie Kirk. If we wanted to celebrate Emancipation Day, mm -hmm. let's celebrate it on the day it was ratified, it was enacted, let, let, end of the Civil War, if it's connected to one of those things, but we know this whole thing was microwaved in the aftermath of George Floyd. And mm -hmm. it's like, oh, well, yeah, Juneteenth, that'll work. And let's do it. And, and, and they know, I think the left, and, and again, Donald Trump's neither left nor right, in my opinion. He's you know, a political opportunist. And, and, and I, I can't even say that, when I say that, I don't want it to sound as negative as, as it does sound, but he's just a, politician at this point and, mm -hmm. and he's just trying to survive but but it was all done to help a propaganda campaign of like if whoever says they're against it they're racist and this is how we hold on to the black vote and particularly the black male vote which is starting to show some real dissatisfaction with us and so it's it's just a political tactic that, that's, that's what this holiday is, and that's what people find offensive. And that's why, again, and, and anybody that watches this show and has followed my commentary, I don't cape up for Candace Owens. I, I just don't. And, and, you know, but it's why I'm not really offended by her criticism, because she's inarticulately expressing that this whole thing is a scam. And that's what she finds offensive. She called it ghetto. She called it lame. But, you know, th those are just words you throw out in emotion and in anger. I'm capable of making the exact same mistake. But, but bottom line, all she's to me, what she's arguing is like, this is a scam. This is, this is, she's not making this argument, but I am. This is what we do instead of saying, the black family's in total crisis and a mess. Let me go dust off this Monaghan report from 1965 and let's fix this. 
No, instead, let's give the Negroes June 10th, and they get to act like they frustrated conservative white people, and they'll be happy with that. Well, I mean, I, I'm always up for talking about the family, particularly the black family. But again, I, I think, you know, these these days come and they go. So, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, focusing on, on this particular issue is important. Um, I'm not convinced that if it was. I'm just looking at, and sorry, I just want to throw this in. I just want to throw this uh, in while I, it's on my mind. I'm just looking up. The first Columbus Day celebration took place October 12th, 1792. And, uh, I'm, I'm so just throwing I, that well, out there. I, so I, I, I'd say it, it would be good to look up when the first Juneteenth celebration took, took place. I, I'd wager it was sometime before 1910. That would be my wager, right? It's not. It's not, you know, 2021, but but here, here's my thing. I'm not convinced that even if, um, particularly if it, if it was a Democrat doing this, made the ratification of the 13th Amendment a national holiday. And I'm not even proposing this, because, uh, Jason, honestly, I'm much more con- concerned about the society that we passed on to our descendants than the society that our um, ancestors had to endure. I, I, I respect and honor the people who came before me and I honor the past, but I cannot come to them, right? At best, I'm gonna meet them on the next side of eternity. I'm, I'm working to, to pass on something to my progeny. So I'm not, I'm not one of these people that says, you know, we're gonna get from New York to California by looking in the rearview mirror. That's, that's not gonna work. But my thing is this, if a Democrat was doing it and a large part of that holiday had to do with um, talking about slavery and race and racism, Charlie Kirk would be just as antagonistic towards it as he is now. And I would make the, the opposite argument, which is, Hold on. if President well, I'm Trump- I'm sorry, repeat that, mm-hmm. repeat that, repeat that, repeat that. Charlie, he would no, be I'm, just as antagonized if it were. It, it, I'm saying, uh, my, my, I would wager that Charlie Kirk would be just as antagonistic towards, uh, you know, the a holiday made to commemorate the ratification of the 13th amendment right if it if it if it dealt if a democrat did it and the day came with um talk about slavery and slavery's history in america and and the impact that it had on all different types of social structures and institutions and racism and it was tied to all of these other things because again this is what everybody does they take something that happened in 1964, and then they say, oh, this thing that's happening today with my preferred group is just like the old thing. And Democrats and Republicans alike do that. So what I'm saying is if it had anything to do with race and talked about racism, he's probably going to feel the same way. That, that, that would be my sense. And the other argument is that if, if President Trump you know, was in office well, hold today— Hold on, hold on, hold on. There's, a real, uh-huh. there's an easy test for that. There's an easy okay. test for that. We'd have okay. to go look at what he says on MLK Day, because that's certainly going to make you talk about race and racism, and you know, celebrating Martin Luther King Day front and center. Slight, slightly the discussion different. Discussion on race. Slight, slightly different because this one deals with slavery, and, and there's a way in which slavery feels like a heavier, and I and I hate to use this language, but a heavier chain around the, co- the collective neck and shoulders of the country than sort of the, the civil rights era of, of Dr. King. I, I do think there's a, there's, a, there's a slight difference in how those two things are handled. Um, so that, that, that would be my argument. And again, I, I don't know that we'll ever get there in order to test that argument, 
But the best I, I have is that Charlie Kirk took a completely different position on Juneteenth when his guy was in office. That's the best that I have. So when he does an about face today, I'm not convinced that there's anything of substance. And as I said, it's not that conservatives do not want to fight for historical symbols and figures. It's just that on the, on the right, particularly the online right, and, and you and I talk enough about social media to understand how social media itself can change the dynamics of a conversation. The online right is much more resolute in saying, we are not tearing down any more statues of Robert E. Lee, right? If, if you know, now on Monday they say, these are all the, the racist symbols of the Democrats. But on Wednesday they say, we're gonna defend them to our dying breath. Governor DeSantis, uh, Mike Pence, saying we're gonna rename Fort Bragg you know, for, for the, con, the, the Confederate, who, which it used to be named for. And again, these are not major issues for me, but when those same people turn around and say, oh, lift every voice and sing, which was first sung by black school children in Florida at, a, at an event commemorating Abraham Lincoln's birthday, oh, that's, that's woke. Because it happened in 2020, it's tied to George Floyd, and now a, a song that is older than the National than Star Spangled Banner is now is now woke. What I'm saying is, I don't think anybody should allow their foes, whether in real life, ideologically, politically, or spiritually, to to be the true north of their moral compass. I am more than just what I'm against. I have to talk about what I'm for, and and that's one of the things I, I wish conservatives and Christians spent more time doing. Because if I just looked at what was going on yesterday, it was a whole lot about, you know, we're against this, we're against this, we're against this, from the same people who, during COVID, would use slavery rhetoric and metaphors to talk about what Fauci and Dr. Burks were doing to them, right? So, Charlie Kirk, I think, he, he has his own ideas about what liberation looked like. And all I'm saying is, if I'm a conservative, particularly in the political sphere, there's nothing that the left could do that would make me cannibalize my own history of abolition. The lift every voice and sing and Juneteenth had their own history and their own mm -hmm. celebrations and uses that everybody pretty much uh, either celebrated and participated in or ignored. They were non-polarizing. Lift Every Voice and Sing was never polarizing until it became, oh, we got to play this second national anthem at sporting mm -hmm. events and, and start talking about the black national anthem. Then Juneteenth. This is all in the aftermath of George Floyd. I'm not going to be hypercritical of people that are saying, man, George Floyd died and they have used this thing to remake. They wanna defund the police. Everybody mm -hmm. now hates the police. Uh, th they want to uh, say, hey, we got a second National Day of Independence, Juneteenth, and we have a second alternative national anthem, the Black National Anthem. There are people that have bought into the idea. And I, I can't speak for Charlie Kirk. I, I know him a little bit. He's been on the show. <clears throat> but I, I can speak for myself just as a 56-year-old. They're sitting there. I'm sitting there going, 
Hey, I thought the whole thing was about bringing us together and everybody mm-hmm. coming together under one thing, one belief, one national holiday, one national anthem, one God, one nation. But, and I'm looking at a group of people that want to install all these alternatives. And it's frustrating because you're sitting there saying, hey, a country can't survive this way. It can't have two Fourth of Julys. It can't have two national anthems. It can't have all this animus towards law enforcement and think that it's going to survive. And so can't speak for Charlie Kirk, can't speak for Candace Owens, can speak for me and people that I talk to that, that are like, hey, these aren't foundational blocks being installed into America that will promote unity. And what we all thought we were doing in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, 90s, we all thought we were coming together and that was the goal. Some were doing it better than others, some were doing it more authentically than others, but now do they see, and again, this is where I don't see it as them seeing it as woke, I see them seeing it as like, this is to tear down American unity. And, and, and like, hey, everybody's gonna have their own little tribes and we're all gonna be at war with each other and we're all gonna have our own little separate days. On Juneteenth, black people celebrate the country. On July 4th, white people celebrate the country. It, it's, that's not a sturdy foundation and just me as a Christian, I'll go back to you know Jesus and Jews and Gentiles and the New Testament and everybody coming. That's where I thought we were headed and that was the goal. And these pieces that are being installed don't help us get there. I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad you, you talked, to, you landed where you did because again, um, the Jews and the Gentiles coming together to be one in Christ did not erase the identities of either party. Right. The Jews were still Jews. They, they, they still harken back to the Passover. They still harken back to Exodus. The Gentiles did, had no such history. Now, as an engrafted people, and particularly Christians today who read the Bible, there are lessons that we can draw from that, because ultimately when we talk about faith. The, the ultimate message of the Christian faith is one about liberty and freedom from sin and bondage and from sin and death. Right and freedom to, to love God and worship him fully with our whole selves in, per, in unity with him through the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So again, there's, there's no context in which someone would get me to speak poorly about, about freedom. Now, I will say this, I, I completely understand and I agree with your point, um, a house divided cannot stand. But one of the things that I've seen um, more and more in the last couple of years is particularly black conservatives who even when they see the, the black, green, and red go out on Juneteenth you know, materials, even my column, they'll say, hold on now, Juneteenth has its own flag. It's a red, white, and blue flag that celebrates this day, but with colors that are firmly sort of rooted in our national symbols. Because what, I, what I'm seeing, what I've seen over the last couple of years is that there are a lot of black folk who do not agree with the Colin Kaepernick's of the world, all the, the you know, quote unquote, woke athletes who want to tear down this country. The, the reason that they celebrate Juneteenth is because they say, I don't want to tear down this country 
This is the only country I've ever known. This is the country of my forebears who, who fought in every single war since this country was founded. And we're not going back to Africa. I'm not an African, I'm an American, but I'm a, an American with a particular history that, that should not be you know, shuttered to the side as a lesser history and to your point, should not be elevated as a greater history, but should be incorporated into the larger uh, narrative of, uh, of, of America's founding. And, and I think that those people are extremely valuable because without those people, the only black folk who will be talking on holidays like this are the social justice left who do not seek to affirm this nation, the warts and all, they, they seek to tear down this nation. And I, and I, and I don't think that that's healthy. So uh, ultimately what I'm saying is, you know, I, I, I get the criticism of Juneteenth. I get why it should be aimed in a particular direction. Um, but as I said, even as a believer, as a Christian, uh, I understand the, the importance of liberty and I understand the importance of freedom and I understand the importance of history. But let me, and I, again, I'll ask this question, Jason. Um, do when 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 you see conservatives, political conservatives, who say we want to fight against any further tearing down of Confederate statues, how how do you reconcile that with people who then go on to say that singing "Lift Every Voice and Sing" at an NFL game, again, craven as it was in terms of the decision, how how is fighting to up, uphold the symbols of the Confederacy, not divisive, but singing a song that was written to Lincoln is divisive. How, how, would, how would you reconcile those two things? Well, I would think making an argument about holding on to the Confederacy is divisive. And I okay. would think offering up lift every voice and sing as a uh, a second national anthem is divisive. Uh, some, some things, some of these statues, monuments have been built and put in place. And I don't think tearing them down is actually the right thing to do. That's running away from your sordid, nasty history. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but so there's a difference between tearing down is different than installing something, an alternative. And, and it's, it's, I, 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 I get the question I, I'm, mm -hmm. and we'll continue it on Twitter spaces okay. after the show <laughs> because I got to move on. But, but I, I get the question. I'll just end by saying Building up something that this complicated and this as diverse as America is just a bit more difficult than appeasing someone's want to, hey, let's turn Juneteenth without a whole lot of thought, whole lot of serious debate. Hey, let's just make it a national holiday. We did that on the fly with no thought. And it, it's not a foundational piece that's going to keep us together. And, and uh, you know, tearing down every uh, monument that's a part of our past isn't building us up either. 
It's, it's, mm. it's just political foreplay and political theater uh, all done to say, hey, this group's racist, this group's not racist, and blah, blah, blah. It, it's all a game. And none of it really gets at uh, you know, foundational truths that will strengthen us and this country. I got to go. We're going to continue this our on Twitter Spaces, 7.30 Central tonight. Uh, there'll be a gang of us. Uh, stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. Shamika Michelle next. It's my obligation to hate discrimination. Raising up your hands for freedom. All right, welcome back. Time for Shamika to Michelle to make it make sense. Uh, there's trouble in paradise for Russell Simmons and his ex-wife, Kamora Lee. Uh, this dispute has been playing out all over social media. Both parties taking to Instagram Live to air each other out and uh, their two daughters are involved. This thing is ugly. Uh, let's play a clip of Kamora Lee, who's been divorced from Russell Simmons for, I think, more than a decade and remarried to some Wall Street guy, I think. Uh, but anyway, uh, let's play a clip here from Kamora Lee. We don't engage with him. We don't talk to him. We haven't spoken to him in many months, many, many, many months, probably going on years. Um, but I noticed that he started to cryptically post um, children of divorced parents are oftentimes brainwashed. And I thought, wow, you and people really, you know, probably start to believe that in the world, social media. I don't know. People take sides. We all know that people don't know what they see. You can show them something like this and they're like, I don't know if that was a hand. I don't know what that was. We're not sure. Right. You don't know what you see or what you don't see. But I noticed that I got a lot of comments from that. Again, these are all comments and reports because I don't he's blocked. Um, and that's been that way for a while. Um, also funny to note that he has been blocked for quite a very long time, but yet continues to post messages like we're friends, we're comrades, we're there. He posts all old pictures of my kids. Basically, I, in my opinion, my humble opinion, he's, you know, I don't know, delusional and living some kind of a lie, to put it mildly. All right, so Russell Simmons, uh, one of the biggest executives, moguls in hip hop history. He was basically Jay-Z uh, before Jay-Z, although Russell didn't rap. Uh, you know, he was brothers with members of uh, Run DMC and led Def Jam Records. And then I'd say, what, five years ago, he got Me too and, you know, basically silenced. But he was at the head of the black Illuminati, hip-hop, uh, crime ring, pedophile ring. <laughs> pedophile is a strong word, but the guy started dating Kamora Lee when she was 16 and he was nearly 40. So make of that what you will. I think she was a sophomore in high school. She may have been 15 years old. Make of that what you will. Uh, they get married. They're married for more than a decade, and they're kind of the first couple of, of hip-hop. 
She starts a clothing line, I think, called Baby Fat, and his clothing line, Fat Farm. He's worth three, four hundred million. She's worth two hundred million, allegedly, at you know, at the apex of their power couple regime. Literally, Russell Simmons and Kamora, they were Beyonce and Jay-Z before Beyonce and Jay-Z, and now they're at each other's throats. Uh, the kids are involved. I, I can't fully get to the bottom of this, but uh, that's why we have Shamika Michelle uh, to get to the bottom of this and make it make sense. Uh, what's going on here, Shamika? So apparently, Russell has been upset with Kamora for a while. Uh, he accused her and her estranged husband of trying to steal money from him. So he actually filed a lawsuit against them a few years ago. And so she said that um, he's blocked. But she also said, I watched a video that was like over 20 minutes long. She also says that she has really been supporting him financially for the last 10 years and um, that she doesn't think he has the money that he claims that he has, that she thinks he's, you know, broke and that he's not doing as well as he puts it out there because he at one point, I guess, was giving the girls um, a few hundred dollars maybe a month as they were in college. But then he abruptly cut the money off. And according to I think. Ayoki is the youngest daughter. Every time she speaks to him, he's yelling at her and hollering at her. She released a screen record, which doesn't have any volume, so we don't know what he's saying. But she claims that every time they speak, he's yelling at her and calling her mom names and that it causes her to be on emergency medication because it gives her anxiety. So this is really surprising, you know, for them to come out saying this, because initially when they first divorced, they were like the model for co-parenting. I myself remember watching Kamora's show and thinking, wow, they get along so good. You've seen pictures with Russell and even her new kids, one that she had with the African, I think he's African uh, actor. And then she had another one with this new guy and then she adopted a child. You've seen them all together as one family, still visiting each other's homes, vacationing together. So they were like the model couple as you know, how you do it when you divorce that you can still be friends. And so now to see that they're going through this is just very surprising. Now, a few years ago, when this um, these women came out claiming that Russell had harassed them or raped them, she took and defended him. And even in this 20 minute video that I watched, she said that she is that person that comes to people defense. I kind of took it as she was alleging that maybe these women were telling the truth, but because of her position as the ex-wife and the mother of his kids, she defended him. And so she said that's her personality to always come and defend people that she loves, but that she's seen so much, she knows so much, and that she just never really spoke on it and kind of apologized for taking such a silent role or the role of actually defending someone who may be guilty of some of these allegations. 
this is interesting and fascinating for me because I've had uh, dealings with Russell Simmons going back uh, to the early 1990s, maybe 1991 was my first. I remember interviewing Russell Simmons for a story I did on the Charlotte Observer about, uh, I think, Sister Soldier and rap music or, or whatever. And, and I, could, I just remember the quote in, in the paper that I used from him is when he told me, everything's black right now. And, you know, there's all this money to be made in just being black. And this is in 1991 or 92, he's telling me this. And I can remember putting that quote. And then in 2007, uh, when I'm on the Oprah Winfrey show, and Oprah had me on to discuss hip hop and how hip hop denigrated black people and black women in particular. And just, and, and this was in the height of the Don Imus controversy. And, and I can remember I'm on stage making my argument about hip hop and how like Don Imus is insignificant. And Russell Simmons, who at the time I think employed uh, Dr. Ben Chavis, former head of the NAACP, former member of the Nation of Islam. At this time, he was partnered up with Russell Simmons. And there, at this point, they're in the audience, I'm on stage, and they're both mouthing, we're going to get you inward. We're going to get you inward. Their mouth, as I'm on stage talking, they're threatening me, that what? they're going to uh, hurt me. And, and I, I can Russell Simmons didn't surprise me. You know, he's in the rap deal. Ben Chavis purport at that time purported to be a man of God and, you know, again, former head of the NAACP. But it, it just illustrated to me that these guys in the rap, I mean, they're just thugs and common criminals and and willing to do anything. I'm just stating an opinion about rap music and speaking to its degeneracy at that point. And they're threatening me. Two men, you know, highly respected. And again, this is Oprah Winfrey's right there. She can't see. She's got her back. But I'm being interviewed on stage, and a couple other women are, are sitting next to me, and they're in the audience right in front of me in the first or second row. We gonna get you. Gonna get you. Nah. And <laughs> it, it just so I'm prone to believe the women that say that there's a nasty side to Russell Simmons and they're generally speaking is to people with great power and 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 great power through you know the promotion of immorality and if you listen to the interview yesterday with Jimmy Levy uh, about the wickedness and the demonic nature of the rap music industry you know these people are what they purport to be in these rap videos, it's, it's oh, it's just a movie, it's just a game, it's just a game. No, it's not. These are not good people. I, so I'm kind of uh, taking satisfaction, I hate to say that, in Russell Simmons's fall, that the Me Too thing got him. He apparently has a lot less money than 
that's being reported and he's struggling and and his former wife again who he started dating when she was a sophomore in high school right uh, this pedophilia thing this attraction to young kids with these high-end music executives and Hollywood executives that's a real thing Shamika and and, and people you know, we're, we're playing games and pretending like uh, these are serious people that Jay-Z and all these different Meek Mill and all these different rappers are, are, are some sort of positive influence on American culture and on black Americans in particular. That's a joke to me. And so I, I wish that we I would love to know what the truth is here, because I'm sure Kamora is no. At this point, she was a victim at 15, 16 years old, but at this point, she's no innocent victim. It seems like she's been protecting Russell Simmons for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I know initially it was kind of hard for me to see Russell as this monster that some of the people were painting him to be. He had a former employee that said that he tackled her with no clothes on. And I think he did come forth and say that he was in her office or something with his penis exposed. But I think it was the list for me just to hear him talk. I'm like, surely that list is not coming from some thug, aggressive man. It was just hard for me. But when I actually think about the fact that, yes, Kamora was very young, he got her at an age where she was able to be groomed to be exactly who he wanted her to be for a long time. And even as someone who is divorced and has children with the, the man that I'm divorced from, I know there are times that you do step into that protection because this is the person you you were married to. This is the person that you have children by. You never really want to see them painted in any type of negative light. I have a chapter in my book called uh, Marriage and Divorce, where I was very careful in how I told my story in an effort to help other women, opposed to how it may actually make him look. I didn't want him to look bad. And so you do step into that role. I think Moore married Russell when they were 23 after being together for a long time. So when you have this history with someone, it's not uncommon for you to actually step into that protector role and not want to see them, you know, ridiculed or dragged across social media. And so I can kind of see where she's coming from. Hopefully at this point, she will actually give these women some type of peace by speaking out. I think I got it a little bit in this interview, but I guess it would be nicer. It would be nice if she was a little bit more forthcoming and just simply put it out there and tell the truth and say, yeah, I knew about this or I knew about that. This happened or that happened because that's the only way she's going to really be free from this. These demons will eat you up. And so she, you know, needs to actually come forth and get some peace and some healing because I'm sure these kids were exposed to some things as well, because at 20 and 23, you should not be having anxiety uh, from talking to a father that you even by your own admission say that he was really good to you. Uh, coming up and y'all have this great relationship even after divorce you know something in the milk ain't right 
And so I'm ready for it to all come out in the wash. What what I wish would fully come out, it has come out in the wash. I wish people would accept. If you just look at R. Kelly and what was going on with him and why he can't even fully accept what he was doing because like everybody was doing this. This is normal. Why are they picking on me? And and so what that says about the music industry and these uh, celebrities that we put up on a pedestal, if, if in the rap game, living out in LA for 10 years like I did, going out to LA and going to parties, uh, even when I lived in Kansas City, just going out to LA and going to Vegas and parties out in LA and having some exposure to Suge Knight and people that were close to Suge Knight and hearing the stories of what Suge Knight would do to men that were in his employ to punk them, sodomize them, make them give him uh, fellatio, things like this. This is rampant in this music industry and all these guys that are running around like they're tough guys from Dr. Dre to Snoop to, if, if you knew what they did, P. Diddy, if you knew what they did to climb up that ladder uh, on bended knee, you just wouldn't have the respect for them that, that somehow this pedestal we placed them on. And again, it's not really our audience that have them uh, placed on a pedestal, but the world does. And, and what that says about the world is just not, just not good. It, 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 it should alarm all of us that the truth is staring us right in the face and we continue to ignore it because we're so uh, transfixed by their wealth and fame and, and the supposing of this great life that they have. And you look at that video of Russell Simmons yelling and screaming at his daughter and, and at one point he says, I'm broke, she took everything from me. That's not, a, that's not the face of happiness. Whatever amount of wealth he had or has, that's not a look of happiness. That looks like a man that's in great pain, his daughters are in pain, his ex-wife is in pain, they're, they're stealing from each other. I, I read the story where he accuses them of trying, like four million shares of Celsius stock. She tried mm -hmm. to redirect to her husband. I, I thought I, I, yeah. I own like 4,000 shares. I thought I had some shares of Celsius. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He just do got 4 million shares. But yeah, anyway. Right, too, because it is out there and we do ignore it. I remember, you know, dancing to BBD, uh, I think it's poison when they say uh, backstage, underage, adolescent. How you doing? Fine. She replied, I, I like to do the wild thing. And as a teenager or someone that was young, I was dancing to it. As an adult, I said, backstage, underage, and it was fine for them. It was maybe it was Do Me Baby. I can't remember which song it was. But it's like they do put it right there in our face. You know, West Coast, I remember hearing raps where they say things like Easy e can eat a bit fat dick. Why would you want a man even in that position with you? So they do actually put it out there and we do ignore it. I can't think of the name of the song right now, but apparently 
I think it's BBD. They have another song that is very explicitly saying they like underage girls. My 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 daughters pointed it out to me, but it never made any popularity. It wasn't played on the radio. And so I totally missed it back then. But they do put it right there in our face. And you're right, because of their notoriety and their money, we overlook a lot of that, just like we overlooked R. Kelly marrying a, what was she, 14 at the time? So, yeah. Shamika, uh, thank you uh, for making that mess make a tiny bit of sense. I don't know. It'll never make sense. But thank you so much. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow. No, we actually we'll see you tonight on the Twitter spaces uh, when we're talking about uh, Juneteenth. All right, stick around. Don't go anywhere. Get your Fearless Army swag at shopblazemedia.com slash fearless. Hit those likes again. Let's get up to two or 3,000 likes. Give me those five-star reviews on Apple. Uh, Jack Posebiak, next. All right, welcome back. Uh, let's bring on one of the most interesting follows in social media, certainly over Twitter, one of the most powerful uh, Christian conservative voices in the social media space. Jack Posobiec uh, rejoins us. And Jack, I want to start with the news of the day. Hunter Biden has pled guilty to some misdemeanor tax charges and uh, misdemeanor gun charge or whatever that he's going to avoid jail. Uh, thank God he didn't trespass at the Capitol or he would have faced some serious charges here. But uh, your thoughts on how the Biden's Department of Justice is treating Hunter Biden versus how it's treating Donald Trump. Well, Jason, thanks again for having me on. I always appreciate being here on Fearless. And I, I have to say that I feel as though, you know, we talk about America being a two-tiered system of justice. They say America's got a two-tiered system of justice, one for the haves, one for the have-nots, one for the, uh, the proles, one for the bourgeoisie. But, you know, I think at this point we now have a third system. We've actually entered a third tier. There's now a third tier of uh, of justice because we're we're trying to figure this all out as we watch the incoming. And when you look at the two parallel news cycles that have been kicked off this morning, when we all woke up to the news, number one, Hunter Biden has given this incredible sweetheart deal, not only for the, this is the entire laptop, right? So I don't want to see any of this happy talk from people saying that, oh, well, you know, there's still the other investigation into Farah, the investigation into his father, the bribery. Said, no, 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 no. That's never going to go anywhere. He's never going to see any other charges. We're never going to hear about this bribery stuff again. That was sort of put out to wet the whistle. This Department of Justice will never charge him with another crime. This is the end of it. This is the end of all of it. So we're, we've, got, we've received a third tier of justice today. And the third tier is this. There's the, the tier that, that you and I are on, the tier for the, the proletariats, the tier for the hoi polloi, the regular folks. Then there's the tier for the aristocrats. That's the tier for the Bidens, the Clintons, if you're anyone in that privileged political class. And then there's the third tier, and that's for Trump and anybody at Trump's level or anyone associated with Trump, because they will create new crimes 
uh, that don't normally apply to any president. They'll make up things and twist laws to go after somebody like that that only applies to like a Trump or I guess you could say anyone who's been declared an enemy of the state or an enemy of the regime. I'd put Julian Assange in this class as well. Uh, this idea that they're going to put him in there and say, well, this guy's been too much of a troublemaker. It's kind of the troublemaker class. You get put into that and they will throw the book at you no matter what, even if you can show that you followed the same exact standards as everybody else, because it doesn't matter. Look, we all know. And why do I talk about Trump and Assange in the same category? Because they're both dealing with what? What we're told is classified information. Yet here's the thing. You and I both know that you can read the Washington Post, the New York Times any day of the week, and they're talking about classified information. Oh, here's the Ukraine war plans because they got leaked on Discord by this kid up in Massachusetts and Jack Teixeira. Well, the Washington Post is going to just put out all the Ukraine war plans. Here's the counteroffensive. Here's what the U.S. is pushing. Here's the New York Times. Well, they've got one standard and they can produce classified information whenever they want. And that's perfectly fine. Julian Assange does it on his blog. He gets put in jail. He's we're told that he's a Russian agent, even though no one can find any proof of that. He's being extradited to the U.S. shortly. Donald Trump says, I was president of the United States. I have constitutional authority to declassify whatever I want. Well, you fall into the troublemaker tier. It doesn't matter because they say, nope, you don't have that same privilege the way that every single other president of the United States, all the way back to George Washington having the uh, his his courier at Valley Forge, right? That was the original classification from the commander in chief. That's from where this authority derives under Article 2. It doesn't matter to the people in power now because at the end of the day, that's what this fight is about. About who actually has the power in this country. So do you think any part of this sweetheart deal they gave to Hunter Biden is a smoke signal to Donald Trump? Like, hey, we'll cut you a sweetheart deal too. plead guilty, agree to not run for president, and we'll we'll cut you a little deal like we just cut Hunter Biden. Well, I think that's always an underlying case, right? Um, at the same time, though, I think if anyone spent any time with with Donald Trump, whether you, whether you like him, whether you hate him, you know this is not a guy who's going to cut a kind of deal like he's known as a deal maker. Sure, he wrote a whole book about it, but this is not the kind of deal that he would be willing to take because you have to admit fault in that case. Plus, at the same time, of course, the question is always quid pro quo. And when that Faustian bargain comes to you uh, and you're asked to say, hey, just just sell us your soul. All right. We'll give you riches. We'll give you it's like it's like, you know, Christ meeting the serpent in the desert. Uh, I'll give you this. I'll give you dominion. I'll give you everything. But all you have to do, all you have to do is kneel to me. All you have to do is take my hand and take my authority. And that is the type of deal that I don't think, number one, that Donald Trump would ever take because he knows that the response would be, and you know, it wouldn't be written down. It'd be something that's done behind the scenes. But the response, of course, would be to stop running for president of the United States. And he's never going to do that. He's not in him. So he did an interview with Brett Baer. Uh, some people are saying it did not go well. Uh, there was a particular exchange where Brett Baer, and I think we have that, if we can play the clip of Brett Baer going off on all these people that Trump hired and why he didn't hire better people. Uh, let's watch this clip. In 2016, you said that. I'm going to surround myself with only the best and most serious people. 
Well, I did do that. This and we time, had tremendous look. We had the best economy we've ever had. This the world time, has ever seen. Your vice president, Mike Pence, is running against you. Yeah. Your ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, she's running against you. Your former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, said he's not supporting you. You mentioned National Security Advisor John Bolton. He's not supporting you either. You mentioned Attorney General Bill Barr uh, says you shouldn't be president again. I uh, calls you the consummate narcissist and troubled man. You recently called and uh, bar a, a gutless pig. Uh, your second defense secretary is not supporting you, called you irresponsible. This week, you and your White House called your White House chief of staff, John Kelly, weak and ineffective and born with a very small brain. You called your acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, a born loser. You called your first secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, dumb as a rock. And your first defense secretary, James Mattis, the world's most overrated general. You called your White House press secretary, Kayla Kennedy, milk toast, and multiple times you've referred to your transportation secretary, Elaine Chao, as Mitch McConnell's China-loving wife. So, why did you hire all of them in the first place? Because I hired 10 to 1 that were fantastic. We had a great economy. We had phenomenal people in charge of the economy. We had phenomenal people in the military. I'm not a fan of Millie, and I'm not a fan of certain of the television people. But I knocked out ISIS. I defeated ISIS. They said, Mattis, it would take three years and I don't think we can do it. I did it in a period of like four weeks. There's a lot of people who praise you for your policies. I just said true. that. That's true. Well, I mean, you just went through a list. But don't forget, for everyone you say, I had 10 that love us. Did this interview go poorly for Donald Trump? Well, I think it depends on what uh, what side of the aisle you're on in terms of of looking at Trump to begin with. I think this is the type of interview where it's almost a Rorschach test of, you know, if you don't like Trump and you're a Republican, um, you know, and there are there are some percentage you can see that he's got about, you know, 50 percent in the polls. But, you know, there's another 50 percent of Republicans that are looking at other candidates right now. So you might think, oh, I think this went poorly. Then there's another case where you might say, well, I think this went great if you're a Trump supporter. And then, of course, you're on the left. You don't you can't think there's anything that does well when you opens his mouth. What what I would have liked to see in a response from uh, President Trump, because I can think off the top of my head of all of lots of people that worked in the administration that are still supporting him for office now. Uh, I'm obviously Ambassador Rick Grinnell, uh, people like uh, Colonel McGregor, people like Peter Navarro, General Flynn, Steve Bannon, both of whom, by the way, were, were pushed out of the administration. And then Reince Priebus, Kelly and Conway, they certainly haven't said things like that that were in originally. So going back to 2017, there was, and this was something that I was highly critical of at the time, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. There was this idea that the the sort of the Trump movement and the establishment could live together, that we could be a you know a, uh, a team of enemies, right, and go that do that whole Abe Lincoln thing and bring it bring everybody from both sides in. Whether you're a populist or you're you know someone who's more of that kind of Wall Street class, Gary Cohn was part of that, one of the originals on this. That we're going to bring in all people from all sides and we're going to make this deal together. And you know what? It simply didn't work. And these are people uh, that every single person on that list, not every single person, but the majority of people on that list were people that I was critical of during the administration because I thought that the moves that they were pushing, number one, were undermining the president's agenda. And by the way, there's other people on that list that aren't necessarily on that list that play the same game. But here's what they do, Jason. People, and I'll give you a great name for this, H.R. McMaster, because he'll go out there and disagree with every single policy that Trump or the American First Movement, the populist nationalist movement, the economic nationalist movement, whatever you want to call it, uh, want to say. But he'll always be very, very publicly, you know, flattering of President Trump. He'll say, oh, he's a great president, this and that. I just, you know, 
really need to invade Syria. We really need to go into Iran. We really need to do all these other things uh, and then turn around and say, we need to we need to attack Russia. We need to do this. But it'll always be very positive. Oh, Stephen Miller, another great example of one of the president's long term advisors um, that is still out there supporting Trump every single night. So I do think that it's because of that split in the administration. And by the way, that's something that I hope if there is a second administration does not occur again, that he simply brings in people that are on board with the agenda of his campaign and his policies. Where are you at on Trump versus DeSantis? Are, are, are you solidly team Trump? Well, I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm the team. Uh, and I think I'm a team of one, right? I think that I'd rather see something like Trump than DeSantis, right? Bring in Trump for four years, do the wrecking ball stuff, tear down the entire edifice that we're seeing of this ridiculous Department of Justice and these other agencies, and then hand over the reins to DeSantis because I think that he's shown down in Florida that he's a builder, that he's someone who can put things, put coalitions together, that he can grow things. But we all know, Jason, that the first phase of construction is demolition. And I think you need four, year, four more years of a, really an un least Trump, a guy who's not even going to be worried about re-election at that point to get any of this done. Do you see a path where Donald Trump can win, can beat Joe Biden and the, the Democratic machine? Well, as of right now, there's no chance of anyone other than Trump winning the primary. Uh, Donald Trump's not going to lose or not going to lose this primary and certainly not going to leave the primary under his own volition. So, I mean, I just don't see a path for any other candidate in the primary right now. As far as beating Joe Biden, look, when these indictments come down, that's actually been something that when you look at the polls in terms of also the independent swing, this every time he gets indicted, he's like he goes up five points. And the fact of the matter remains that it's long settled law in the United States that even with the, the only thing that can prevent a president from or a guy from running for president is an impeachment. He's never been impeached and convicted. Uh, the House is certainly not going to impeach him right now. So at the end of the day, these legal challenges are just meant to try to hold him down and be more challenges getting him in uh, in front. But I do think by the way, one of the next things that we'll see uh, related to this January 6th grand jury is they're probably going to try to charge and convict him something relating to January 6th, maybe the seditious conspiracy like we saw with some of these Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. Remember that phrase that suddenly started coming around, seditious conspiracy, of people that weren't even there on January 6th, because they will then try to use that to say that he can't run and try to block him on the ballot. I think that'll be the next phase of this. What do you make of RFK? Is, is he going to be a real problem for the Democrats? Well, I think it's interesting. And I do think that there's also history there of with the Kennedys trying to primary a sitting Democrat. Of course, we know that his uncle, his other uncle, the one that we don't talk about as much, Ted Kennedy, also once famously tried to primary Jimmy Carter when he was the sitting Democrat candidate all the way back in 1980. Uh, similar situation. He got about 25 percent, was tried to take the fight to the convention, wasn't able to get over it. But that primary challenge to Jimmy Carter really weakened him with Democrats. And then Ronald Reagan was able to come in in the general and sweep a lot of those Democrats in the Rust Belt. We, they called them the Reagan Democrats. That was one of the things that led to, the, led to this huge landslide for Ronald Reagan in 1980. And it'd be interesting to me to see if we see that type of dynamic play out again for a Republican nominee, because I do think that what you see with RFK is actually a return to mean for these Democrats, because uh, particularly when he talks about foreign policy, when he talks about the excesses of our national security agencies, when he talks about a return to rapprochement 
with Russia when he talks about uh, directing an economic parity, decoupling with China. Uh, these are all things that used to be issues that his uncle JFK supported, uh, speeches that he would give throughout the United States, reaching peace, deal, reaching peace deals with the Soviet Union. This is exactly in line with the original Democrats that we all used to know prior to the sort of Bill Clinton era when they became so incredibly further and further left. Um, I wouldn't say Bill Clinton's presidency was extremely left. I know, you know, you're not supposed to say that when you're a conservative, but he was much closer to the center than anything that we've seen since his presidency is what I'm trying to say. Final thing, Jack, I want to thank you uh, for supporting the song we put out, Reclaim the Rainbow. You went out to Los Angeles, supported uh, Dodgers fans, Catholics, uh, Christians, believers. This to me... This month of June, I went into it expecting, hey, this is going to be the most explosive and chaotic and contentious Pride Month ever. And I actually think it's been a landslide for our side. I think for the first time we've got the LGBTQ on their heels and we're actually winning some battles. I believe the pendulum is swinging back. That's what you're seeing right now. We saw the first instances of this on D-Day back in June 6th when people really started celebrating D-Day again, commemorating it again in a way that we haven't seen in years. Then Father's Day, we saw huge commemorations for Father's Day that we haven't seen in years. Uh, and and your song, of course, Reclaiming the Rainbow, by the way, when I go to my kids, we've got our we've got our little My Pillow kids pillows. That's exactly, we've got Noah's Ark, we got the rainbow right there. That's what I always explain it's all about because that is what it's all about. And then finally, of course, this massive outpouring in Los Angeles. Look, they said, you know, Poso, come on out. You, you come speak to the crowd. You're a Catholic guy. Bring the rosary, et cetera. It's going to be a huge event. Jason, we had no idea that thousands of people would show up. The L.A. Times had to admit that 2,000 were there. And so if the L.A. Times is admitting 2,000, you know we had at least four. We had Rabbi Michael Barclay come with us. So this actually became a sort of a, you know, a multi-faith event. We said, Rabbi Barclay, what are you doing here? Why is a, you know, why is a rabbi here? He said, you know what? Because they start somewhere and they will come for every single one of us if we don't stand together. And I said, God bless, man. God bless. Because that's exactly what this is about. This is about Christian believers, everyone standing together against not only, and look, not to use the language of the left, which I don't, but how could that group that they were commemorating in Dodger Stadium, how could you define them as or categorize them as anything other than a hate group, a group that is bigoted, a group that hates Christianity, that is mocking sisters, that is mocking nuns. And look, was I a punk when I was in grade school and in Catholic school? Of course, you know, I gave the nuns run for their money. But you know what? They were always there with their rulers and they showed up every day working their fingers to the bone for the kids, for the needy. And I say, you know what? If you want to come for the sisters, if you want to come for the IHMs that taught me, for Sister Janet, for Sister Purcell, for Sister Jane, you know what? You got to come through me first. Jack, thank you so much for the time. Keep doing the work that you're doing. It's inspiring. Appreciate you. We'll catch you next time. All right, we'll play some tomorrow, and we'll see you tomorrow. Waiting for the countdown, coming off the breakdown, standing in line for freedom. Looking for a breakout, feeling like a standoff, nothing in life like freedom. Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my sister, no relation, we all just want to have.